Section 6 of An Editor's Tales by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Josephine de Montmorency continued. He knew well the difficulty that would be before him should he once dare to accept and then undertake to alter. She would be as a tigress to him, as a tigress fighting for her young. That work of altering is so ungracious, so precarious, so incapable of success in its performance. The long-winded, far-fetched, high-stilted, unintelligible sentence which you elide with so much confidence in your judgment has been the very apple of your author's eye. In it she has intended to convey to the world the fruits of her best meditation for the last twelve months. Thinking much over many things in her solitude, she has at last invented a truth, and there it lies. That wise men may adopt it, and candid women admire it, is the hope, the solace, and at last almost the certainty of her existence. She repeats the words to herself, and finds that they will form a choice quotation to be used in coming books. It is for the sake of that one newly invented truth, so she tells herself, though not quite truly, that she desires publication. You come, and with a dash of your pen you annihilate the precious gem. Is it in human nature that you should be forgiven? Mr. Brown had had his experiences, and understood all this well. Nevertheless, he loved dearly to please a pretty woman and it must be acknowledged that the letters of Josephine were such as to make him sure that there might be an adventure, if he chose to risk the pages of his magazine. The novel had taken him four long evenings to read, and at the end of the fourth he sat thinking of it for an hour. Fortune either favored him, or the reverse, as the reader may choose to regard the question, in this, that there was room for the story in his periodical if he chose to take it. He wanted a novel, but then he did not want feminine metaphysics. He sat thinking of it, wondering in his mind how that little smiling soft creature with the gray eyes and the dimples and the pretty walking dress could have written those interminable pages as to the questionable criminality of crime whether a card-sharper might not be a hero, whether a murderer might not sacrifice his all, even the secret of his murder, for the woman he loved, whether the devil might not be saint and saint-devil. At the end of the hour he got up from his chair, stretched himself with his hands in his trouser-pockets, and said aloud, though alone, that he'd be damned if he would. It was an act of great self-denial, a triumph of principle over passion. But though he had thus decided, he was not minded to throw over altogether either Josephine or her novel. He might still, perhaps, do something for her, if he could find her amenable to reason. Thinking kindly of her, very anxious to know her personally, and still desirous of seeing the adventure to the end, he wrote the following note to her that evening. Cross Bank, St. John's Wood. Saturday night. My dear Miss de Montmorency. I knew how it would be. 
I cannot give you an answer about your novel without seeing you. It so often happens that the answer can't be yes or no. You said something very cruel about dear old X, but after all he was quite right in his verdict about the book. There is a great deal in it, but it evidently was not written to suit the pages of a magazine. Will you come to me, or shall I come to you? Or shall I send the manuscript back, and so let there be an end of it? You must decide. If you direct that the latter course be taken, I will obey, but I shall do so with most sincere regret, both on account of your undoubted aptitude for literary work, and because I am very anxious to become acquainted with my fair correspondent. You see I can be as frank as you are yourself. Yours most faithfully, Jonathan Brown. My advice to you would be to give up the idea of publishing this tale in parts, and to make terms with X, Y, and Z, in endeavoring to do which I shall be most happy to be of service to you. This note he posted on the following day, and when he returned home on the next night from his club, he found three replies from the divine but irritable and energetic Josephine. We will give them according to their chronology. Number one. Monday morning. Let me have my manuscript back, and pray without any delay. J. de M. Number two. Monday, two o'clock. How can you have been so ill-natured, and after keeping it twelve days? His answer had been written within a week of the receipt of the parcel at his office, and he had acted with a rapidity which nothing but some tender passion would have instigated. What you say about being clever, and yet not fit for a magazine, is rubbish. I know it is rubbish. I do not wish to see you. Why should I see a man who will do nothing to oblige me? If X, Y, Z choose to buy it at once, they shall have it. But I mean to be paid for it, and I think you have behaved very ill to me. Josephine. Number 3. Monday evening. My dear Mr. Brown, can you wonder that I should have lost my temper and almost my head? I have written twice before today and hardly know what I said. I cannot understand you editing people. You are just like women. You will and you won't. I am so unhappy. I had allowed myself to feel almost certain that you would take it, and have told that cross man at the stables he should have his money. Of course I can't make you publish it. But how you can put in such yards of stupid stuff, all about nothing on earth, and then send back a novel which you say yourself is very clever, is what I can't understand. I suppose it all goes by favor, and the people who write are your uncles and aunts and grandmothers and lady-loves. I can't make you do it, and therefore I suppose I must take your advice about those old hugger-muggers in Paternoster Row. But there are ever so many things you must arrange. I must have the money at once and I won't put up with just a few pounds. I have been at work upon that novel for more than two years, and I know that it is good. I hate to be grumbled at, and complained of, and spoken to, 
as if a publisher were doing me the greatest favor in the world when he is just going to pick my brains to make money of them i did see old x or old z or old y and the snuffy old fellow told me that if i worked hard i might do something some day i have worked harder than ever he did sitting there and squeezing brains and sucking the juice out of them like an old ghoul i suppose i had better see you because of money and all that i'll come or else send someone at about two on wednesday i can't put it off till friday and i must be home by three you might as well go to x y z in the meantime and let me know what they say j d m there was an unparalleled impudence in all this which affronted amazed and yet in part delighted our editor josephine evidently regarded him as her humble slave who had already received such favors as entitled her to demand from him any service which she might require of him you might as well go to x y and z and let me know what they say and then that direct accusation against him that all went by favor with him i think you have behaved very ill to me why had he not gone out of his way very much out of his way indeed to do her a service was he not taking on her behalf an immense trouble for which he looked for no remuneration unless remuneration should come in that adventure of which he had but a dim foreboding all this was unparalleled impudence but then impudence from pretty women is only sauciness and such sauciness is attractive none but a very pretty woman who openly trusted in her prettiness would dare to write such letters and the girl whom he had seen on the doorstep was very pretty as to his going to x y z before he had seen her that was out of the question that very respectable firm in the row would certainly not give money for a novel without considerable caution without much talking and a regular understanding and bargain as a matter of course they would take time to consider x y and z were not in a hurry to make money to pay a milliner or to satisfy a stable-keeper and would have but little sympathy for such troubles all which it would be mr brown's unpleasant duty to explain to josephine de montmorency but though this would be unpleasant still there might be pleasure he could foresee that there would be a storm with much pouting some violent complaint and perhaps a deluge of tears but it would be for him to dry the tears and allay the storm the young lady could do him no harm and must at last be driven to admit that his kindness was disinterested he waited therefore for the wednesday and was careful to be at the office of his magazine at two o'clock in the ordinary way of his business the office would not have seen him on that day but the matter had now been present in his mind so long and had been so much considered had assumed so large a proportion of his thoughts that he regarded not at all this extra trouble with an air of indifference he told the lad who waited upon him as half clerk and half errand boy that he expected a lady and then he sat down as though to compose himself to his work but no work was done letters were not even opened 
His mind was full of Josephine de Montmorency. If all the truth is to be told, it must be acknowledged that he did not even wear the clothes that were common to him when he sat in his editorial chair. He had prepared himself somewhat, and a new pair of gloves was in his hat. It might be that circumstances would require him to accompany Josephine at least part of the way back to Camden Town. At half-past two the lady was announced, Miss de Montmorency, and our editor, with palpitating heart, rose to welcome the very figure, the very same pretty walking dress, the same little blue parasol, which he had seen upon the steps of the house in King Charles Street. He could swear to the figure, and to the very step, although he could not as yet see the veiled face. And this was a joy to him, for though he had not allowed himself to doubt much, he had doubted a little whether that graceful Auri might or might not be his Josephine. Now she was there, present to him in his own castle, at his mercy, as it were, so that he might dry her tears and bid her hope, or tell her that there was no hope, so that she might still weep on, just as he pleased. It was not one of those cases in which want of bread and utter poverty are to be discussed. A horse-keeper's bill and a visit to Dieppe were the melodramatic incidents of the tragedy, if tragedy it must be. Mr. Brown had in his time dealt with cases in which a starving mother or a dying father was the motive to which appeal was made. At worst there could be no more than a rose-water catastrophe, and it might be that triumph and gratitude and smiles would come. He rose from his chair, and giving his hand gracefully to his visitor, led her to a seat. "'I am very glad to see you here, Miss de Montmorency,' he said. Then the veil was raised, and there was the pretty face, half blushing, half smiling, wearing over all a mingled look of fun and fear. "'We are much obliged to you, Mr. Brown, for all the trouble you have taken,' she said. "'Don't mention it. It comes in the way of my business to take such trouble. The annoyance is in this that I can so seldom do what is wanted.' "'It is so good of you to do anything.' "'An editor is, of course, bound to think first of the periodical which he produces.' This announcement Mr. Brown made, no doubt, with some little air of assumed personal dignity. The fact was one which no heaven-born editor ever forgets. "'Of course, sir, and no doubt there are hundreds who want to get their things taken.' "'A good many there are, certainly.' "'And everything can't be published,' said the sagacious beauty. "'No, indeed.' Very much comes into our hands which cannot be published, replied the experienced editor. But this novel of yours, perhaps, may be published. You think so? Indeed I do. I cannot say what X, Y, and Z may say to it. I'm afraid they will not do more than offer half profits. And that doesn't mean any money paid at once? asked the lady plaintively. I'm afraid not. Ah, if that could be managed. I haven't seen the publishers, and of course I can say nothing myself. You see, I'm so busy myself with my uncles and aunts and grandmothers and lady loves. 
Ah, that was very naughty, Mr. Brown. And then, you know, I have so many yards of stupid stuff to arrange. Oh, Mr. Brown, you should forget all that. So I will. I could not resist the temptation of telling you of it again, because you are so much mistaken in your accusation. And now, about your novel. It isn't mine, you know. Not yours? Not my own, Mr. Brown. Then whose is it? Mr. Brown, as he asked this question, felt that he had a right to be offended. Are you not Josephine de Montmorency? Me? An author? Oh, no, Mr. Brown, said the pretty little woman. And our editor almost thought that he could see a smile on her lips as she spoke. Then who are you? asked Mr. Brown. I am her sister, or rather her sister-in-law. My name is Mrs. Puffle. How could Mrs. Puffle be the sister-in-law of Miss de Montmorency? Some such thought as this passed through the editor's mind, but it was not followed out to any conclusion. Relationships are complex things, and as we all know, give rise to most intricate questions. In the half-moment that was allowed to him, Mr. Brown reflected that Mrs. Puffle might be the sister-in-law of a Miss de Montmorency, or at least half-sister-in-law. It was even possible that Mrs. Puffle, young as she looked, might have been previously married to a de Montmorency. Of all that, however, he would not now stop to unravel the details, but endeavored, as he went on, to take some comfort from the fact that Puffle was, no doubt, Charles. Josephine might perhaps have no Charles. And then it became evident to him that the little fair, smiling, dimpled thing before him could hardly have written, not so black as he's painted, with all its metaphysics. Josephine must be made of sterner stuff. And after all, for an adventure, little dimples and a blue parasol are hardly appropriate. There should be more of stature than Mrs. Puffle possessed, with dark hair and piercing eyes. The color of the dress should be black, with perhaps yellow trimmings, and the hand should not be of pearly whiteness, as Mrs. Puffle's no doubt was, though the well-fitting little glove gave no absolute information on this subject. For such an adventure the appropriate color of the skin would be we will not say sallow exactly, but running a little that way. The beauty should be just toned by sadness, and the blood, as it comes and goes, should show itself, not in blushes, but in the mellow, changing lines of the brunette. All this Mr. Brown understood very well. End of Section 6 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina